If you had to choose between a Tempur-Pedic or a mattress in box springs, which would you choose? We've been through this a number of times. My little wife and I, uh, I'll find a bed I like, she doesn't like it. She'll find a bed she likes, and it doesn't matter. Because that's just the way it is. Whether I like it or not is immaterial. But we tried a Tempur-Pedic. And it, was, it wasn't just a Tempur-Pedic. It was a Tempur-Pedic that the feet raised and the head raised. Whew. So he raised the feet to a certain degree. And then the salesman, he said, yeah, you ought to be feeling a little bit stuffy in your head. And I, and I really was. I really was. And so he started to raise the head of it. <clears throat> and he said, it should be just about now. Everything clears up. You know what? I've never in my life felt that before. He raised it, and all of a sudden, it's just like, he said, that's called cloud sleeping. I said, man, that is awesome. He said, you know what? You'll never move from that position all night long. I said, that's incredible. <laughs> then we got up, and I said, how much is a bed like that? We have a mattress and box springs at our house. <laughs> He wanted $10,000 for that bed. I said, I said, good luck, brother. That's awesome. I said, can I just come out and lay on it every day? <laughs> it absolutely, it would be. It would be the last one I'd buy. But you know, we're all looking for comfort, aren't we? We're all looking for comfort. Um, Sometimes it's in the type of shoes we buy and wear. Certain types of shoes are better than other types of shoes. Some have more padding. Some, some are, and now they have shoes that are built for everything. I mean, you can't just go out and get a pair of tennis shoes, can you? That's what we call them, tennis shoes. No. It, 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 are you going to walk in them or are you going to jog in them? Are you going to play a sport in them or are you going to... I mean, and there's all kinds... And, and, and boy, they're economical, aren't they? They're very economical. Yeah, whatever happened to pay less? Five bucks a pair. <laughs> whatever happened to that? Uh, you go camping. Any of you camper? I'm not a big. My, my idea of camping is the Holiday Inn. But you know, some of you like to camp. I know you do. Is it more fun in the summer or in the fall and spring when it's cooler? Oh, summer. You like the hot, sweat? Okay. No thanks. Where the, when the mosquitoes are nine times bigger than they're supposed to be? No thanks. But anyway, we're all looking for comfort. But there's a common denominator when we're looking for comfort because our society places high value on it. Certain hotels provide more comfort than other hotels. Yeah, they do. And you'll pay for that comfort. True? New commercial out, and the guy calls the front desk, and he says, uh, one of the room service, he said, can you go across the street to McDonald's and... Bring, bring me any, any roll rattle off his order. And the concierge, he said, well, we don't provide a McDonald's. He said, well, you said when I checked in that anything you could do to make my stay uh, happy, we want to do it. And so the next scene shows one of the, uh, one of the uh, doormen pushing a cart with McDonald's sack on it. You know. so. But we all place a high value on it. Memory foam. Lazy boys. It's funny the names of these things. Lazy boys. You ever been 
I didn't know they made big man, big men chairs in Lazy Boys. I've sat in a few of them. I don't own one, but I wish I did. Those are nice. Body pillows. How about that one? Where you can, I, I don't know, what do you do with one? Wrestle with it? I don't know what you do with it. Snuggies. Well, when I was a kid, I wore Snuggies, right? Well, now we got adults sleeping in those things. <clears throat> TV shows exploit our love for comfort. Uh, any of you seen the show Dirty Jobs? Well, that's really, and when you watch that, you're, what do you usually say to yourself? Man, I'm grateful I don't have that job. Because we're comfortable where we are doing what we're doing once we watch some of these other jobs. I mean, hey. But there is a danger in loving comfort too much. And I don't just mean putting on some extra pounds. There is danger in loving comfort too much. We've become Christians accustomed to comfort even in our faith today. I mean, we... We shouldn't, wouldn't even think about going to a church that didn't have air conditioning or heating in the winter. Padded chairs instead of wooden seats. Sound system that works sometimes or doesn't most of the time. Fans to move the air. I mean, where, where, where's those donuts at? I remember one Sunday we didn't have donuts here. And somebody stopped me and said, where's the donuts? Just like that. I said, at the store? I said, somebody didn't go get them today. Well, I, I, I started to say, hey, won't you just run down and get them? But I, I didn't want to create an argument. Even our Bibles are softer. Have you noticed? They're not that old hardback Bibles. that you heavy. They're lightweight, thin line, soft covers. Put them in a carrier with handles. The messages are padded as well. We've got a lot of messages that are full of easy teaching. Doctrines have become lifeless, leathery, and eventually the message of the Messiah has become a mush of the moral scriptural, biblical teaching that we should be receiving. Luke 9.23 is our theme verse for this study of not a fan. Are you a fan or are you a follower? Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So what do comfort-craving fans do with something like the cross. It's really hard to avoid a cross, isn't it? Especially when you're a Christian, you're supposed to always have a cross. Either around your neck or in your pocket, hanging from your rearview mirror. You need a cross. Draw it on a piece of paper. And what I've found is when he says, take up your cross... Fans eventually find a way to even make the cross comfortable. Take up your cross daily, he says. 
fans will create a comfortable idea of what the cross is and what it means to us. Some will say, well, we, we all have crosses to bear. Well, that's my cross to bear. And we throw that around so loosely and so frivolous, frivolously that it refers to even the most menial and everyday task and inconvenience. Oh, I've got to get up and go to church. Oh, that's my cross to bear. Oh, I got to get up. I, oh, yeah, I know. They say, hey, you got a special offering going. Oh, yeah, I got to give a little extra. Oh, that's my cross to bear. Yeah, I know. I've got to be nice to that person at work. I don't really like them, but I've got to be nice. That's my cross to bear. Isn't that, is that how we are? And the cross gets pushed to the back in sermons and Bible studies, making its big appearance at Easter. Christmas, it's casually mentioned, but boy, it's an Easter sermon. The cross. Death on the cross. We've left Jesus on the cross for so long that we can't even function without Him being on the cross. He got down off the cross. He left us to go back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to move in us, and we're still hanging Him on the cross. Because we've made him comfortable. It's hard to sell the cross. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to buy it. Because if you really, really, really sell the cross, you've got to sell self-sacrifice. <laughs> you've got to sell, this ain't about you. It's all about God. That's a pretty hard sell in these day and age. It ruins Christianity's hope for decent public relations, <laughs> the cross does. I mean, in our culture right here in America, they want to get rid of the symbol of the cross anywhere they can. They don't want the cross to be anywhere. Still arguing about the Ten Commandments that are hung in some school districts. On public property, they say. Put your best foot forward. Show more tolerance. The study we're doing is based off of a book, certainly the book of the Bible, but some challenges from a guy named Kyle Otterman. I want you to hear a little video presentation by Kyle. Something's wrong here. Have we got the CD going? Is that Jenga going on your computer? So I've talked a lot about the unconditional let's, let's joy, that, that video segment, the peace please. that passes understanding, the grace and mercy. Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. And so I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy 
that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus. I've emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way. Imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married, but she really wants to be. And so I decide to help the process along. And I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got, or I'll send you back in. We do our best to make Christ appealing and sound appealing, but we, we sacrifice things when we do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how the world sees the cross. And in verse 18 he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it's the power of God. For those living in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of weakness. For many, then and now, the message of the gospel, that God came to the earth in the form of a man crucified is simply complete foolishness. And I mean, why would God use a symbol of torture, of death, of weakness to save the world? Well, I suppose the idea of the cross seems more appealing to us because it's no longer used to execute people because we've dressed it up. We've dressed it up to be much more receptive of. But in the first century, the Jew came and he saw, if he were to come into our churches and saw our illuminated crosses, it would make them sick. Can you imagine people walking around with guillotine earrings or electric chair earrings dangling from their ears? For the Jews, the cross meant weakness. And I think that's the point that God is trying to make. That's what makes the cross so beautiful. God takes what from a human perspective is foolish. He chooses what has no glory and carries no honor, finds the least likely symbol for love and life, and He says, I'm going to use that. Guess what? Go look in the mirror, and He's doing the same thing with us. We're not the most likely to succeed. We're not the most handsome, the most beautiful, the most gifted. But what we are, are perhaps the most available. Because He will use us for our availability more than He will ever use us for our ability. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, 
He turns the foolishness of the cross into the power of salvation. Look what he says in verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Who else but God could take a cross that represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? Who else but God could take a cross that represented guilt and turn it into the symbol for grace? Who else but God could take a cross that represented condemnation and turn it into a symbol of freedom? Who else but God could take that, a cross that represented pain and suffering and turn it into a symbol of healing and hope? Who else but God could take a cross that represented death and turn it into a symbol of life? Well, no one else could do that, but he can. He can take you, and he can take me, and he can turn us into something beautiful. And not only can he, he has. Amen? So what God did for the cross, he can do for us. And that's when we're weakest. We're exactly where we need to be for God to be the strongest. It's when you and I can't do it anymore. Then we watch Him do His best work. And then if we're really wise, we'll give Him praise, honor, and glory for it. But too often we get cocky, don't we? We get cocky. And we think, well, because I've been such a faithful fan of God, well, he's going to just love me. Well, remember Matthew 7, he said, many are going to come to me and, the, and say, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Now, he didn't, they, didn't, they didn't come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did, weren't, we, weren't we leaders in the church? <laughs> They're not going to come to say, Lord, Lord. Did, I mean, we were great tithers, Lord. They're not going to come and say, Lord, Lord. No, he said, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Now, that's a big time thing. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Well, that's a second big time thing. And he says, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. So just because you can perform doesn't mean that you're saved. Because if your life is no different the day you found Him to today when you've been with Him, what good is it? Good is it? What good is it? Because any of us on Sunday can talk about how, I mean, the halos are out on Sunday, amen? And then by Sunday afternoon, the horns are still holding them up. Yeah. I get a privilege of hanging around our teenagers. And there are days when our teenagers are saints. Man, last Wednesday, John 3.16, watching them serve people they don't know. Serving that food up. Cleaning up the tables. Mopping the floor. Well, I guess that's what you call mopping. But anyway, it was close. <laughs> washing dishes. And there's lots of dishes to wash. Pots and pans to wash. Hundreds of glasses of iced tea to make. All of them doing it. 
And then there's times when they're just really kids, aren't they? There's really times. How many of you have some of those at your house? Yeah, you do. My wife would tell you she still has one at her house. And here I am. Because I find in my own life, the thing I want to say is what I don't say. And the thing I do say is what I don't <laughs> Amen? We all make it. We're still works in progress, every one of us. And what God did for the cross, he can do with us. In verse 27, 1 Corinthians. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. It's not that God used the cross in spite of its weakness. He chose the cross because of its weakness. He'll get a lot more done in you when you allow Him to get you at the most broken part of your life. When you're the most desperate When you can't go another step, when you can't do another thing, when you can't say another word, when you you have nothing left is when God can do His best work. He can do it. Because, see, when we're up on the top and we've got it all under control and we're large and in charge, we, we don't even know who God is. I had some people working at our house this week and I'd go in and out, you know, see if they needed anything. And one of them found out I was a pastor. And he said, I got a question for you. I said, okay. He said, why is there so much pain and suffering and death in this world when God could stop it all? I said, brother, I just came home for lunch. I didn't come home. Man. So for the next whatever, how long it took, we talked about that. I said, you know, life's full of choices, isn't it? I said, all the stuff you just described, oftentimes, are a direct result of some bad choices made a long time ago. That started a series of issues that we're still fighting today. I said, but here's the good news. In the midst of all that pain and all that agony and all those things you described, that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And if I want to hang on to what's here, I'm going to be miserable. But if I don't care what's going on here and I'm looking forward to there, I'm going to be a lot better. I don't know if that was the right answer for him, but that's the one that God laid on my heart to give him. Because I was kind of hungry. I, I have to be honest. But he's got two twin kids being born, a boy and a girl being born to him pretty soon. I don't know if she's married, if he's married to that girl or not. But every day I say, you got any babies yet? Not yet, not yet. I said, your whole world fixing to change. He said, I don't, he said, I don't know what to do. I said, just sit back and relax and take a deep breath. I said, you feed two instead of one. I said, and they're going to be hungry. In spite of the weakness, he chose the cross because of its weakness. 
Paul says that God chose the weak things throughout Scripture. God continually chooses weak over strong. Let me give you a few examples. Abraham was old. Jacob insecure. Leah unattractive. Not our present Leah. Joseph humiliated. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson proud. Rahab immoral. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah depressed. Jonah disobedient. Naomi a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric. To say the best, Peter impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. Timothy was timid. God used unusual people to do great things, you see. There might be hope for you and me. If he can use a donkey to preach. I contend he can use Harold to preach. <laughs> and he did. And he is. Though it seems backward to us, God teaches us that when we think we're strong, we're really, really weak. But it's when we acknowledge our weakness and humble ourselves before the Lord. And we put ourselves in a position then to receive His strength. We can see great things happen. Paul talks more about this in the second Corinthian letter, chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, when he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I will delight in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, I don't know anyone who actually delights in their weakness. In fact, most people go to great lengths to disguise weakness. How many of you ever gone to a, a job interview to say, and, and when, the, when, when you're asked the question, what's your greatest weakness? You know, they want to ask what's your strength and what's your weakness. Well, how many of you then just tell them what your greatest weakness is? Any of you ever do that? Any of you sit back and say, well, I'm never on time. Well, to be honest with you, I procrastinate about everything. I have trouble getting along with coworkers. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, never, I'm, not, I'm not even sure how to even turn on a computer. Ain't that what we say in our interview when he says, what are your weaknesses? Well, you must know. Well, heavens no, we, we cover it up. We cover it up. We, we try to cover the weakness with a strength. We say, well, you know, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. Yeah, whatever. Or we say, I tend to be a bit of a workaholic. But why do we do those things? Why do we try to cover it up? It's because in our world, in our economy, weakness isn't strength. Strength is strength. There are 2,000 self-help books published every year that communicate one message. You can do it. You can improve. You are, can be on top. And, and you have what it takes. That's what these books tell you. But Paul says strength comes when we realize our weakness. In the book, Kyle tells this story. When we were traveling over spring break, my son had packed some toys and, and books in a backpack and insisted on hauling that thing around himself. He volunteered. He said, I volunteered several times to carry it for him, but he wanted to do it himself. And it was clear that he wanted us to notice and point out how strong he was. We came to that conclusion when he would say to us repeatedly, hey, look how strong I am. 
But on one occasion, we parked in the hotel parking lot late at night, and we weren't very close to the entrance. I knew that Cale was tired and started off strong, but soon was struggling. And with a heavy sigh, he stopped, and he didn't really say anything. He just turned and looked at me and dropped his backpack on the ground. I picked it up, put it over my shoulder, and we walked a few more steps, and then he stopped again. Another heavy sigh, and this time he reached up, and I scooped him up in my arm. And I was happy not only to carry my son's weight, but also to carry him. And I wanted to learn a lesson from my son. I wanted to, I wanted to admit my weakness. I want to ask God to show me his strength in my life to do for me when what he did for the cross. It's part of my pride that I want to carry my own load and I refuse to admit my weakness. But the cross makes it clear that when I am weak, he is strong. Isn't that a great story? And that's really the test for us as Christ's followers. Will you, like Christ did before us, trust God enough to let your weakness be his strength? Because it's when we let go of our need for comfort, our need to be in control, our need to glory in our strengths or accomplishments or our paycheck or our trophies or our co-workers' approval or whatever it is that keeps us from abandoning a comfortable version of the cross. It's then that God does in our lives what He did in Christ's death. It's then that God does in our hearts what He did. For the cross. In Sunday school, we ask the question When you came to Christ, did you respond to a sales pitch? Or was there a true conviction in here that this is what I should be doing? See, there's the question of the hour. Because if you responded to a sales pitch, then there's no skin in the game for you. But if you put this in it, now there's skin in the game. In other words, have I gone through these ritual ceremonies? Have I, have I done these things that I'm supposed to do and that the preacher has said all of my life I'm supposed to do? And if I do all these things, whoop, I'm saved. Or has it been a true whole out surrender? Because he doesn't call us for just a little bit. He calls us for every bit. Every bit. Every bit. He takes followers who were hanging by the thread, bolsters their spirits. He takes followers who are at their weakest moment, uses it for enormous kingdom good. He takes followers who are all but defeated, turns their testimonies into life-giving messages of truth, hope, and all of it to His glory. To His glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, do for us what you did for the cross. Do for us what you did for the cross. Do for me. Do for this church. Do for this city. Do for this nation. Do for this world what you did for the cross. That we might begin to understand why you chose such an uncomfortable means of self-sacrifice. Do for us what you did for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be here.
And something resonated today in you. You may be saying to yourself, you know, preacher, I think you're on to something. I think I've been playing at this instead of really being serious about it. Well, I know a God that's ready to move the gap like that. I know a God who has open arms like this, ready to reach out and to hug you and embrace you in a way perhaps you've never been hugged or embraced. I know a God who loves you with an everlasting love. I know a God who wants to take whatever burden it is and share it and eventually lift it. I know a God who can take you in your darkest moment and create such light that it would blind you. I know a God that can just love you, care about you, and want the best for you. But he's still standing like this. And he's still waiting for you to come. And if you'll take but one step toward him, he will run to meet you. He'll run to meet you. If you've got a decision, make it today as we sing together. Let's stand.